I'm joined by a special guest, Steve Schwarzman, CEO of the Blackstone Group and best-selling author. Apparently, that's what they say. I heard that book is uh, selling like hotcakes, Steve, yeah, so congratulations. What, what it takes. What it new, takes. It's a New York Times bestseller and Amazon best book of the year, and a lot of people love it. It's fun to read, evidently, and people give it to their children after they're finished, oh, of all things. Let me ask you about uh, President Trump and Davos, but actually more than that, just President Trump in general, because you were an early and vocal supporter of the president. A lot of other chief executives weren't on board I have a feeling that more of them are now. Do you feel validated to a degree because of that? Well, I, I don't think like that. Uh, you know, I, I thought uh, the president would do a, a very good job on uh, economic issues and, you know, debottlenecking uh, the economy, reducing regulations, all those types of things. Uh, and um, uh, I, I learned that he was very focused on uh, trade issues and uh, the perspective that that he articulates uh, uh, in private as well as I think in public uh, is, is all he's looking for is a level playing field uh, for the United States with other countries on uh, business matters and trade. Uh, and uh, th those relationships um, became quite unbalanced uh, as a result of just history and the history was pretty simple. Uh, after World War II, uh, the U.S. had roughly 70% uh, of the world's GDP. Right. And the reason is that whole parts of the world were basically destroyed uh, by World War II. And so we, we helped people get back on their feet, uh, like with the Marshall Plan in Europe. Uh, it was in our interest, it was in their interest to stand Europe up again. The same thing in Japan, we helped rebuild that country. And, and as these countries started growing, uh, people in uh, different countries would approach the United States and say, would you mind if we just put some tariffs in on some goods? We're trying to develop a domestic industry. We're quite insignificant uh, in the world scale and you're so big. And so we let people do that to the point that they, they had a lot of barriers and a lot of tariffs. And, the U.S. now has shrunken from 70% of the world economy to somewhere around 22%. Right. And, and so what, what we've, uh, in effect, inherited now is um, much imbalanced relationships. And the last two global rounds of, of uh, trade in Doha, uh, as one of them, have failed. And the reason these global rounds fail is nobody ever has to give anything up. So you go to it right. and all these countries show up and the U.S. says we'd like to just be equal in terms of access with you. And the president has put their feet to the fire, but some people don't like the way he did it. Is that the only way to do it? Is that the most effective way? I, I'm not sophisticated enough, nor do I know enough. Uh, I do know that... Uh, for the most part, take China, for example, it's been since 1949 that, there's, that we've had a bilateral agreement with them. Uh, and, and so they obviously didn't think it was in their interest. Uh, we have all kinds of imbalances around the world, which is why trade rounds fail. It's right. not just two countries. It's, it's somebody else who says, I don't want to give something up. And, and so we're now in a different zone, and he appears to be quite aggressive and he's using techniques to drive people to the table and it's 
quite uh, difficult to watch that, but right. it, it, it's, it's, it's ended up getting uh, uh, different outcomes. Well, all right, let's talk about some of those outcomes. Did we really make substantial progress with phase one with China, Steve? I think, I, I think the way to look at phase, phase one, Andy, is, um, is, is since we've never had an agreement, bilateral agreement with this country, there was, there was a reason. They, they didn't want one. Uh, uh, and now they want one. Uh, and, and so uh, that in itself is, is a major change. Uh, the, the fact that um, uh, there's a lot in that first agreement. Uh, well, we had various agreements. I mean, we didn't have a comprehensive agreement. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of agreements. Uh, and, and so what, what, what you have now is a de-escalation uh, of tensions in the trade area X technology. Uh, so, so if you look at the largest amount of, uh, of commerce between the two countries, uh, these two countries uh, comprise somewhere, uh, depends how you calculate it, 35 to 40 percent of the entire world's economy. It's with two countries uh, that have been in a very bad place over the last two to three years. The idea that the countries have come together and said, this, this doesn't make sense. Uh, it's affected um, global manufacturing. Uh, it's slowed down the, the world's entire growth, which shouldn't be a surprise if, if because China and the U.S. are so big. So, so, so it's changed the setting of what's going on. And then there's a bunch of other stuff uh, in the agreement, which is, uh, which is good, too. Is this going to mean that global growth will pick up in 2020 if you're suggesting that it addresses that? I think uh, what it says is, is that uh, global growth should not be declining significantly as a result of this. In terms of going up, uh, that, that's a bit anybody's guess uh, because there are a lot of other factors. You said this week that the markets, or I'm inferring that you said the markets are high. You said there is less to buy these days. Does that concern you? Does that mean that we're going to be heading for a correction? Well, in, in securities markets, it's, it's highly unusual when things go up almost every day. Uh, you know, usually uh, a market finds some consensus level uh, where it waits for new things to develop. Uh, this has been, um, you know, sort of pretty remarkable. Uh, markets, U.S. markets are up 30 percent. Uh, Last year, you'll remember uh, the quarter before last year started, uh, most of the commentators on television said we were going into a uh, significant recession. The market sold off 20%. Uh, this last year, you got the 20% back because the judgment of a recession was completely wrong. Uh, and then you tacked on another 10, uh, right. if you will. Uh, so so I, I think where we are... Uh, now, as, we, as we've had a really, really good run, uh, uh, some kind of pause wouldn't surprise me, but tactically, I don't know when that would be. Does that mean, um, by extension, the U.S. economy is due for a recession? No. So you can have a market dislocation and not a recession? Not necessarily a big dislocation, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you, you just can't assume things go up every day. This Fair is really enough. quite unreasonable. Right. Uh, the U.S. economy is uh, in, in quite good shape. Um, and, you know, we're growing somewhere in the two-plus zone. Uh, unemployment is at uh, 
lowest since uh, World War II. Uh, you know, there are lots of people now who, 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 who didn't have a job and weren't looking for work who've come into the workforce. Uh, and, and so um, the other good thing that's happening mm -hmm. now is that wages are going up uh, much faster than inflation. And pr that's particularly at the lowest end uh, of, of the income scale. And, and it's in going up inversely with wealth. So, so, so you know, the lower income workers yeah. are getting increases of 5% plus, uh, and that's dramatically more than 1% plus, and they're spending that money. Can any Democrat beat Donald Trump in November, including Mike Bloomberg? Well, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I'm not uh, a political uh, expert, uh, and, you know, I, I've been spending most of my time watching Democrats uh, because apparently nobody covers the president when when he's campaigning. So it's like a tree falls in the forest on the Republican side. Well, some people side. cover President Trump when he's campaigning. Yeah, too much. Uh, the Democrats would probably have 95% of the airtime. Uh, well, there's a lot more of them. That's also true. But I said I've watched them. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, my, my, my concern there uh, is, is really about what, what are the really far left, uh, you know, whether they're self-proclaimed socialists uh, or progressives of a certain type uh, and the type of things they stand for. Uh, I, you know, I, I just don't know if that's electable uh, in, 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 in the United States. Well, we're certainly going to find out. Yes, we will. Steve Schwarzman, CEO of the Blackstone Group, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. We want to welcome our next guest, Tom Nides, Morgan Stanley Managing Director and Vice Chairman. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. You've been to Davos now how many times? Uh, probably too many times. Uh, but <laughs> I think I'm on my, probably on my 10th trip. Wow. How is, I'm, I'm just curious sort of how this year compares to other years in terms of just sentiment overall. Do you feel like there is a sort of optimism in the air amongst those that you're talking to? Are people more cautiously optimistic, perhaps, about the economy? Yeah, listen, it's hard not to be positive about the economy. So if you walk in here, you can't, having seen what's happened in 19, I think people are generally optimistic, but I think people are cautious. Because mm -hmm. I think people's view is what goes up comes down. Invariably, this is going to change. When it's gonna change, it's anyone's bet. But I don't think this continues on the track it is for you know the next two years. So I think there is a general healthy bit of um, uh, optimism with a good dose of uh, anxiety. Tom, Morgan Stanley just reported some BAFO numbers. And maybe that's a little strong, but running on all cylinders, right? Company's doing great. So let me ask you, what keeps you up at night over at Morgan Stanley? What are you guys concerned about? Well, listen, I think as James uh, Gorman has articulated very clearly, we have a very clear strategy, right? Half our revenues are coming from the institutional business. Half of our business is coming from the uh, wealth management business. It's a balance. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a clear view that the investors like. They like the uh, results. They like our mix of businesses. And they like the, I think they like the leadership that we've kind of articulated. You know, what we always worry about is the economy. We're, we're not uh, any different than other uh, companies that are sensitive to economic ups and downs. I mean, the good thing, I think, for us is that in a kind of normalized economy, uh, I think we'll do just fine. 
Uh, we put out a pretty good strategic plan a couple days ago. Um, obviously, the earnings were good, uh, but we understand that this is about um, the long term. It's quarter after quarter, year after year, but I think the real message is we have a balanced business that hopefully will be able to withstand the ups and downs of markets. In your previous life, you were uh, chief of staff to U.S. Trade Representative Mickey Cantor in, in the Clinton administration. So I'd like your uh, unique perspective on the phase one trade deal. Does it, does it do enough? Um, and, and are you optimistic about a phase two? Because we really don't have a timeline for when that might happen. Listen, um, I'd rather have a deal than not a deal. I mean, it's clear that for all of us who uh, are in the markets, uh, having um, a calmness in our markets with our one of our largest, if not the largest, trading partner, that'd be China, is important. So I don't, I don't discount that of the importance. Do I believe um, we need additional reforms without question? Do I believe that the administration is doing a good job of trying to get them to the table? I give them credit for that. Um, I'm not going to overplay it, and I don't think they should overplay it. This is the beginning of a long discussion uh, the, during the Obama administration, which I was uh, proud to serve in. We, too, have many discussions, a lot of bilateral um, uh, discussions about trade deals and uh, attempts to try to break down trade barriers with the Chinese have done. I know you have my friend Mike Froman coming in. He probably will be uh, as articulate as any of us as on what we accomplished in the administration. But listen, I'm, I'm happy for it. Uh, I think the markets uh, like it. And obviously the proof is in the pudding exactly what it's going to come and how it's going to uh, benefit uh, consumers. Tom, you and I have talked about the Democrats' prospects in November, which candidate, and I know you're a keen observer and sometimes participant in the process. And you talked about the left and how to mobilize that candidate and the more centrist candidates and how what it would take for them to win. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Listen, um, this campaign um, season is about ready to get going. I think it's 12 days Iowa starts. We have, we're going to have a robust uh, caucus in Iowa, which then leads into New Hampshire, and then Nevada, and then South Carolina, and then ultimately to Super Tuesday. Um, I think we're hearing from voters that they want to win, okay? So if you're a political observer as I am, and obviously I, I lean uh, uh, more Democratic, uh, and if you believe that you want to win, uh, I think the view of this is to win is going to be that people want change, but maybe not radical change. Because listen, let's face it, the economy is doing quite well. And I think given that, I think people are, have angst about how much change they want. So again, I think that the idea that the Democrats' energy is certainly significant. But as an observer, as I am, uh, I think uh, a middle-of-the-road candidate would probably be, have the best shot at potentially, which is going to be a very difficult camp regardless, of having the best shot of uh, ultimately winning uh, the election in 2020. Who would be the best person, though, to keep the bull market running and to keep the economy growing? Listen, as we know, presidents are, play an important role, but they're not God. Uh, as we all know, um, markets go up and markets go down. Economies uh, speed up and economies slow down. So no president, neither Democrat nor Republican, should, should overplay their hand. We should not feel just because the stock market's going up that everyone should get the, 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 the kudos for it. And when the market goes down, they don't necessarily get the blame for it. We have to be really balanced as voters and as citizens. Um, we have just come off and still in a middle of the best economic time we've had in a decade. This will slow down at some point. So listen, who's the right person? Who is the right president? That's for the voters to decide. Uh, but ultimately, um, the president probably doesn't have as much to do about the direction of the economy as the economy itself 
uh, does. All right, we'll leave it there. Tom Nides, Morgan Stanley Managing Director and Vice Chairman. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. Joining us now is Anthony Scaramucci. He is the founder of Skybridge Capital, former White House Communications Director. Great to have you here. Hey, it's great to be here. You got a beautiful set. Thank and you. now we it's even show. more beautiful yeah. with so. Anthony in there. Lots of sunlight. Look at that one here. Great shiny. Yep. Thank you. We, do, we tried it. We, we aim to please. Um, so you've been doing this for a lot of years, coming, coming to Davos. My 14th year. 14th right? year, but, yeah. who's, but who's counting? Um, I'm curious Actually, what... I got to start lying about it because I'm lying about my age. <laughs> no, I don't have to lie. Right, you're good. It's my third year. No, there you go. There you go. 14. What, I mean, you've been talking to a lot of people, going to panels, on panels. What are people thinking about President Trump? Are they warming up to him? Are they embracing him more than they did two years ago when he so, came? So, I mean, you know, Andrew Sorkin wrote an article about that for the New York Times. I think, I think what's happened is that uh, he's abnormal. He acts abnormal. He says abnormal things. He tweets abnormal things. He bullies private citizens. He has a bellicosity of rhetoric that's shocking for an American president. And so what's happened is the bell curve of normalcy has shifted and the people here, the delegates here, have, have accepted some hyper-normalization. And so it's like if you have a crazy uncle, he's acting crazy, you're at the dinner table and you're trying to ignore some of the things he's saying and hope that the spasm of crazy goes away. But it's not going away, and so that's the big issue. So I take great solace in the following thing, that about 85% of these delegates are holding their nose and are embracing him and are telling each other he's going to get reelected. And so... That gives me great confidence that he's not going to be reelected because the consensus here is generally wrong. Um, I sat in uh, one meeting after the next in 2007 where I was told that we had limitless growth and uh, uh, Dick Fold was here, CEO of Lehman Brothers at the time, and uh, the opportunity for the return on equity for uh, investments banks was uh, unheralded. And there was going to be, the only thing we were worried about is a potential soft landing in China in 2007. And so the world rolled off the cliff 18 short months later. And so, so Trump is a demagogue. And so demagoguery, if you really study it, it has a life expectancy of about four to five years. So we're in the four and a half year period of this demagoguery. And so when Joe McCarthy's demagoguery ended, there were many great political leaders who said, my God, why didn't I speak up? Why didn't I recognize the idiocy of this? Why didn't I not recognize what this person was doing to the great institutions of our country? And so... So I'm hoping that we'll find virtuous men and women in the Republican Party that will speak up. Uh, they may not do it here at this impeachment, but he'll likely be impeached again, just like General Kelly said he would be, because he's amoral and he surrounded himself with sick But he'll remain in office. He'll remain in office, likely. Um, I still think there's an outside chance here that he will not be the Republican nominee. I think there's just so much lawless activity around him and so many things that are under investigation right now that it's it's not 100% clear that it'll be. But here in Davos, they say he's going to be. And here in Davos, they say he's going to be reelected. So, so, so I predict that that will be a wrong assumption by these people. Right. So you think that the Democrats will coalesce around a candidate that will s receive enough support to defeat him in November? I mean, that's yeah, because that's they're going to pick up right. they're going to pick up four to five percent of the Republicans, and they're going to pick up about eighty five percent of the moderates and the independents. And so, uh, the path to the presidency is going to come through Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Trump looks reasonably strong in those areas. Again, I'm very objective about it, but he won't look reasonably strong uh, by November once they coalesce around one candidate. But isn't, isn't having it, said that, yeah. all bets are off if they pick. Uh, 
Jeremy or Jenny Corbin. Right. Okay, yeah, that would it. be Elizabeth Warren right. and, uh, and Bernie Sanders, <laughs> but, the Je Je Jenny and Jeremy Corbin of America. But isn't so. it all, you said holding their nose. A lot of Americans are probably going to do that too, Anthony, because the economy is so strong. Uh, right. Right. I mean, isn't that, that's just a huge chit in his favor. Right, and it doesn't look like the economy is going to, um, economy you know, is, fall off the rails. Strong, but you look at the wage data as carefully mm -hmm. as I do, and the good news for the bottom ten percent, the wages are up, but the bad news for the middle class wages in America, they're actually down mm -hmm. over the last three years, and the income gap has actually widened in the last three years, and so. You and I may not feel it. We're sitting here in this beautiful solarium in Davos, but I can tell you the people I grew up with feel it. And I think the people I grew up with say, you know, I haven't really gotten anything out of the Trump experience, particularly in these blue states where they took away their tax deductions. And so, so maybe, maybe right, people will vote the stock market and maybe their 401k is more valuable to them than the sacredness of their constitution. Maybe that's the case at this point in our history, but maybe it isn't. So, you know, let me put it to you this way. Mm -hmm. With those numbers, those economic vital signs, yeah. he should be at 60 or 65%. Well, uh, he's of approval, right. Yeah, but he's misallocked at 42 because people hate him. Right. So then who do you think has what it takes to take him on and well, to Mike, actually Mike win? Mike Bloomberg could beat him. Mike Bloomberg would have money. Mike Bloomberg knows how to handle a bully. Mike Bloomberg is a great business leader. Uh, Mike Bloomberg has the uh, technical skill set and the street smart skill set to beat him. Uh, I know people think Joe Biden can't beat him, but Joe Biden can beat him. Because Joe Biden's tough. And look at what, what Joe Biden has done here in the Democratic Party. He has stayed as the proverbial front runner. He's, he's staying in there. Joe Biden wins in South Carolina. He's got a lot of support from the African-American community. He could roll into Super Tuesday with a big advantage. And yeah, he stutters a little bit. Some Americans once in a while, when the camera's in front of them, they miss their words once in a while. They identify with him, the common, common person. And he grew up in my dad's hometown, Scranton, PA. And, uh, and they like him in Pennsylvania. So he could beat Trump in Pennsylvania. Another He's just got to beat state, Trump yeah. in, in Michigan or Wisconsin, and then he wins the election. Would and you so, support him or Bloomberg? Yeah, well, let's see what happens. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to support the Republican candidate. And uh, I'm hoping that Republican not, candidate won't be him. Yeah, Donald who, Trump. Who, would, who yeah. would that be? If well, it would be Mike Pence. Or, you know, look, he, you know, I mean, or somebody. There'd be a primary process or a something. Nikki Haley. Yeah, listen, Lyndon Johnson right. left wow. in March. He looked at the landscape, he said, this is not gonna work for me, and he left in March. People forget that RFK didn't come into the race until after the New Hampshire primary. Once Eugene McCarthy uh, blistered yeah. uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, and then you remember, you know, a couple guys turn on Trump. They were turning on him with the Soleimani strike, you know, whether it was Tucker Carlson or they were like, whoa, but we're Anthony, they'll never get off the dime. I mean, you know, those he maybe. seems like the Teflon president. Centers. Walter Cronkite got back from Vietnam. He said, hey, man, this is an unwinnable war. Mm -hmm. And Lyndon Johnson turned off the TV in the Oval Office and said, we've we got to get out of this thing. We, we just lost the most trusted person in America. So he's lost parts of Fox News. Uh, he may have a firewall in Sean Hannity. I know Sean a mm -hmm. long time, he yeah. could be unbreakable, but Trump is so unstable and he's so erratic and he does so many unpredictable things. And if, you know, and if Sean would invite me back on the air, we could have a real yeah. vigorous debate about what conservatism is because we've exploded the deficit. We've got two and a half trillion dollars that we've added to the deficit. Uh, he acts in a manner that is absolutely bizarre. It's against the conservative principles. And he's doing something to America that you, you and I, don't like. You're a journalist, so yeah. you're not going to admit that you don't like it. But Come but on. the people run America. Right. Voltaire said, tell me who I cannot criticize, and then I will tell you who runs the state. Well, you know who runs our state? The people. 
Right. Okay, these people are it there to like serve. Sounds like something a journalist could. Uh, these, these people are there to serve. They are not th there to could, rule. Yeah. Okay. So, so he's become an American oligarch. Let me and he ask needs to you. Be defeated. But let me ask you. I mean, you have used to have a kind of love-hate relationship where you would still communicate with the president. Have you completely yeah. broken the president? You're not talking no, to him anymore. I don't talk to him anymore. He said I called him a thousand times. Just more, more of his lies. But here's what happens to everybody. Okay? So he. Let you me never did call him. You never called him. After I that. called him twice right. since Easter Sunday. So I don't know what he was talking about, okay? And the other reason I called him is that Joe Kernan was off the air on Squawk Box, and they asked me to see if we could get him to call in because they, right. they wanted a ratings boost. But let's just go over how it works, okay? Mm -hmm. You start out disliking the guy, okay, which I did in 2015. Yeah. Then you're like, okay, let me figure out a way to like the guy. Okay, that's where Lindsey Graham is right now. He started out yeah. disliking him, and then yeah. you go into the arc of liking yeah. him, and then you end up over here where you dislike him. Yeah. Okay, but so you Lindsey Graham is what on his you, way over what there. What made you make that decision? Human weakness. Uh, the uh, attraction to the idea that I was a blue-collar person and that the president-elect of the United States asked me to do a job for him. Uh, my wife was super mad at me. She told me not to do it. She disliked him. Do you regret uh, it? I almost got a divorce. I don't regret it, no, because the opportunity to serve my country uh, is something I don't regret. The mistakes that I made on the job, I'm fully accountable for. I never blamed anybody else for my firing. Um, and I stayed loyal to the president after I was fired. No right. one can make the claim that I was a disloyal employee. Fully accountable for. I never blamed anybody else for my firing. Um, and I stayed loyal to the president after I was fired. No right. one can make the claim that I was a disloyal employee. I said, okay, I made a mistake. I got fired. I told General Kelly I hold myself accountable for it. I tell young people, own your mistakes. You don't blame anybody else for what you've done. But you also have to forgive yourself. So I moved on, stayed loyal to the president. Continuous crazy, continuous crazy. My liberal friend said, well, he's no different in 2020 than he was in 2015, so why'd you change? I said, well, you know what, I'm different. Mm -hmm. I'm more humble, I'm more psychologically aware, I'm more understanding of the fragility of the system of America and the damage that he's doing to that system. And so, so therefore I felt that I needed to speak out because I love my country. But if you take a step back, is there anything he's done to date that you think has been good for this country? The phase one trade deal, the new, the USMCA. Well, the phase one trade deal is mediocre. The USMCA is a modest improvement, but you have to take the president's showmanship and his marketing skills. That has boosted uh, consumer confidence and business confidence in America. Uh, the rollback of the Obama stringent regulations has certainly helped America. If you're a conservative, you like the judicial appointments that the president has made. I'm a very balanced guy. I'll look at it very, very objectively. But when you have the scales of the preponderance of that presidency, and you think about his style, and you think about his bullying, and you think about his un-American nature as the American president, you think about the embarrassment that he is on the world stage, and you think about how he's destroyed hard and soft power of the United States around the world, you have to weigh those two things and say, okay, you know what? Maybe we can get the same policies less crazy. Okay, like a light beer commercial. Same policies. Right. Less crazy. I want to ask you, that's, that sort of leads to my question, Anthony. A lot of CEOs say, I don't like his style. I think he's a bully. Sometimes I even think he's a jerk. But boy, I love his policies, and that's great. Some people say that's a paradox. Some enough. people say it's not right. What and do you think? Andy, it's not enough, no. okay? You have to remember he is an orange wrecking ball crashing into the great institutions of America and the checks and balances of the system. It's not enough. It's not enough to just like the policies. You have to protect the system, okay? The reason why we've all prospered in that system is because it was a platform for individual freedom, okay? He is now trying to subvert that system and he's trying to be an American ruler 
uh, and he's a public servant, okay? So he needs to be rejected from power. If the Republicans don't want to look at the evidence and call witnesses and see the direct lawless activity and the impropriety of what he's done and reject him that way, well, then we got to go to the ballot box. Do you I ever take and, 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 and I'll get there, man. You know, I go to yeah. two swing states a week. When I'm, I was in Iowa last week. I was in Michigan. You're out there Iowa. spreading this yeah, word. Of course, I'm talking mm-hmm. to great. Do you want to run for office? No. Why would I do that? I'm, I'm running for re-election in my marriage. I'm just trying to stay married. Okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm, on, look, I'm if, on like a one-day term in my marriage. Okay. So it's constant campaigning. If the stock I don't, market, I don't need to you run got for campaigning starts at home, I guess. Then right. Amen. Charity and campaigning mm-hmm. starts yep. at home. I don't need to run for office, but I need to be a good citizen. And I need to put the values mm-hmm. of what the country stands for ahead of everything else. But do you have but a pack? Do you have so, a yeah. so I joined forces right, with did. the Lincoln yeah. guys. So mm-hmm. I was going to start my own pack. Mm-hmm. These guys started an amazing pack. They're running ads, and so I'm mm-hmm. putting money and raising money into that pack. Uh, and then, but I'm going to go out there. I think where I can be the most effective is speaking to civic organizations, women against bullying. The Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of America, the United Way. I spoke to a land expo in Iowa last week and just explained to people that th- what he's doing is un-American. And, and in the great Hollywood movies, the hero is not a bully. You know, I mean, the bullies do win sometimes in Hollywood, but they win in the dark, really bad movies. They don't win <laughs> do in the movies that inspire to this, us. people to your message, or do Absolutely. they think, like, oh, my God, this guy, you know, of course he feels Do they feels think you bad. have a personal vendetta against the president? I mean, are there people out there? I'm sure there are oh, people they, out there I mean, who think Listen, that. I mean, I'm sure people think I have a personal vendetta. I don't have a personal vendetta. If I had a personal vendetta against the president, uh, when he fired me the day after, I would have been in an attack position. I stayed loyal to him for two-plus years. Okay, I just, you know, when he, when he started telling the congresswomen to go back to the countries that they came from, they told my Italian-American grandmother to do that. You know, come on. My, my grandmother produced three children, my mom and two World War II veterans. My uncle Anthony, who I'm named after, was wounded on Normandy Beach. He received the Purple Heart. My other uncle, who's 94, my uncle Sal, was in the Ardennes fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. So, so should my grandmother have gone back to the country that she came from? This is a racist, nativist trope that he's using to inspire his but base. It's absolutely is, disgusting. does the economy, which is growing, does unemployment at a 50-year low, low interest rates, and a record stock market trump everything you just said? Maybe. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. Yeah. Let me ask Remember, you. there's a lot of lawless activity that's right. going to continue to unfold here. So, again, he may not yeah. make it, um, but I would make the... When I you would say make that, what do you mean? That he'll be removed from office? Yeah, well, that was or, his or, or he'll step down. He'll be right. like, okay, I can't really run for re-election because I'm like a rank criminal and I'm about to be indicted in New York State or the city of New York. You know, so Are you trying to convince CEOs that no. no? You don't need to convince CEOs. Well, no, but I mean, but they're all out there Here's supporting one thing them. you and I know. I've been uh-huh. here in Davos for 13 years, okay? Yeah. It's a match-sailing race. Okay, nobody wants to be wrong. In, in, mm-hmm. in January of 2016, in a match-sailing race, Trump had no chance to get the nomination and Hillary Clinton was the 45th president. Yeah. Okay, and so today, uh, of course, Trump is the man, and we got great prosperity. And their communications, if these CEOs wake up every morning, they say two things to themselves. Please, dear God, don't let Trump tweet at me. That's the first thing they say. Okay, because they don't want to hurt their publicly traded company or their standing in the world. And then the second thing they say is, okay, let's just get through the day without a catastrophe happening in the world because the executive branch of the United States is ill-prepared and understaffed for that catastrophe. Anybody that really knows the world knows 
how dissembled the executive branch of the United States has been since Donald Trump took power in that executive branch. And then if you want to talk about Trump's worldview, it's even scarier. And the super smart CEOs know his worldview. So what they're, they're praying for is let's just get him out of office. Corporate profits are fine. I'm getting great stock options and I'm going to keep my mouth shut. What They're not happens, doing their patriotic duty as Americans to call it out for what it really is. What happens to the stock market, though, until November? Is it going to be on hold? Do you see us rallying to new well, records? Well, listen, I mean, listen, I've been studying this for 31 years. I'm running 11 plus billion dollars. Um, I'm a little bit more defensive. It's 18 and a half times forward earnings. Uh, the, the rates have been lowered. We know that the interest rates are the financial gravity of financial assets. As rates go lower, asset prices will go higher. But there's not a lot of room there. And you guys are financial journalists. You know that there is a potentiality for a mid-year earnings recession. A lot of yeah. juice has been squozing out of these companies in the form of earnings. A big tax reduction, a 40% reduction in taxes, share repurchases, all these things have helped these companies. But it's going to be very, very hard to squeeze more because the production numbers are down. And the GDP, despite the $2.5 trillion deficit spending, is flatlining. So, so it, you, you can't look at it and say, okay, this tree is going to grow through the sky and into tranquility base. It's not heading for the moon, the tree. Mm -hmm. So I'm in a very defensive position at Skybridge. It's probably the third time in my career that I've been in this defense of a, of a position. And what's up with Skybridge? I mean, you, you tried to do the sale, now, you, now it's back yeah, fully so, under so your Yeah, so we were rejected auspices. at Cepheus. Yes. We had the deal sold to a Chinese uh, consortium, and they, they said that our, our company was a national security risk to the United States to sell it to the Chinese. So that's fine. And so I took the company back. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, have a majority vote of the company, and I own 44% of the equity. And so we had a great year last year. Uh, we grew revenues uh, by about 20%, and uh, we're going to launch new products this year. And uh, you've been to our conferences. Mm -hmm. we're, we did a conference in Abu Dhabi. Uh, in consultation with Abu Dhabi Global Markets. We're going to do another one in Las Vegas. We may move the conference to another venue at some point. Uh, maybe we'll be Is in ESG Hong Kong. Is ESG part of the plan for you? ESG. Yeah, ESG. sustainable investing, that kind of thing. Uh, so we've looked at a couple of products uh, related to that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one particular product that I like a lot, and we may either absorb that product or do a white label there. I think that's a future. I think that's mm -hmm. something we need to be in. And so, yeah, I'm open to that. All right, so no, the acronym is well you got to we got to leave it at that. And, <laughs> That's it. Uh, oh yeah, listen, that was we a lot. We try to get a lot in. I try to get a lot in. And always interesting to hear you. Uh, here's what here what's on your mind. The truth so. is uncomfortable sometimes, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, you not know, that uncomfortable. We'll, we'll call you back and see if you're right, well, if these predictions let, come anyway. true. Anyway, let, let, let's see what happens. But we gotta we gotta move on this in a hurry because another four or five years of this be a disaster for the country. All right. Good to see you, Anthony. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Good to be here. The global communications firm Edelman is out with its 20th anniversary trust barometer. And here to talk about that is the CEO of Edelman, Richard Edelman himself. It's great to have you here. Thanks for being with us. Great to be here. Lots to dig into here. And I guess one of the big takeaways take is that more than half of the people you surveyed, more than the half of the 34,000 people you surveyed, believe capitalism in its current form does more harm than good in the world. How is that? So fears have eclipsed hope. And the fears include downward economic mobility and a loss of social status. Literally 83% of people told us they're afraid of losing their job in the next decade to automation, globalization, or immigrants. And there's a real sense of unfairness. The mass class divide is the largest we've ever seen. Um, and it's in countries we've never seen it in before. So happy Canada and 
Germany, Saudi Arabia has a 21-point gap between the elites and the mass population. So these are all signals that the system isn't working for most people. And right, this is a global look because you, you, you surveyed people through 28 different countries. Yeah. And another trend you saw here is that people are trusting business more than they are other institutions. And I'm curious why that is. So it's the first time that business is the most trusted institution in the world. We've done this survey starting after the battle in Seattle in 1999. And so NGOs have always been top of the charts. Business has done this because you start to see action, not words. It's not just social responsibility, it's changing how business is done. And so you see examples of you know, Microsoft with Satya Nadella or Doug McMillan at, at Walmart or uh, Unilever making a big commitment um, on cutting back virgin plastics and Alan Job out front making that very important pledge. So that's the change. Very recently, of course, Larry Fink of BlackRock announcing they're going to look at more environmentally sustainable type investments and dump some of the investments they have that are harming the environment. Well, it's very consistent with what the Business Roundtable agreed in August. 185 American companies have signed on to actually make stakeholder, not shareholder, the first thing. And Fink's very passionate uh, missive yesterday was very clear about the risk of um, environment and to to companies and to cities and that it's a new level of risk uh, for his investments and he's going to have funds that are very clearly targeted to this new mentality of consumers uh, and employees. Back to the idea of capitalism as it stands needing to change. You've got Mark Benioff, co-CEO of Salesforce, Ray Dalio, the big hedge fund guy, coming out publicly recently and saying it has to be a more fair system. So I, it seems as though that's seeping into the, the public attitude. I think that's correct. Um, the idea somehow that uh, business is competent isn't enough. It also has to have ethical behavior. And we've actually found in our research that only a quarter of trust is conferred by your ability to do your job. Um, it's now three quarters tied to are you sustainable? Are you a ethical uh, employer? Are you one way or another involved in job retraining and paying fair wages? These are new demands on business. Which companies do you think have done a good job of that? Starbucks uh, taking out straws from the cups. Kevin Johnson, the CEO, also committing to hiring veterans and uh, opportunity youth. Unilever um, making, again, a, a commitment to sustainability. Walmart. Uh, and these companies have really led in category and changed the rest of the way that business looks at uh, the world. Getting back to the way people now seem to be trusting business more than any other institution. More and more, they're also expecting a lot from their company's CEOs to sort of lead the way in terms of, of, of change. A stunning 92% of people told us, I want CEOs to speak up on the issues of the day, from LGBT to privacy to sustainability. And 75% said CEOs should lead their companies and not wait for government on mm. these key issues. So move ahead. So actually the reason for this is that trust has actually become local. That mm. in fact it used to be uh, in the Moses model from the mountain down. Then it moved 10 years ago because of the rise of social platforms to horizontal, to peer to peer. Now in the last year or two it's moved to local people close to me, a person like myself, a fellow employee, colleague, uh, and my CEO. So my employer is 20 points higher 
than business in general. You touched earlier on 83% of respondents saying they actually fear losing their jobs. I found this surprising, especially at least I can speak for us here in America. We've got low unemployment at a 50-year low. We've got a booming stock market, a strong economy. What are some of the reasons why people are afraid about losing their jobs? It's a trust paradox. You know, for the um, prior, you know, 15, 18 years, um, we saw that the model that was proposed in the early 90s about upward economic mobility and tied to a strong legal system was the determinant of trust. So rising GNP more or less indicated that a country would be trusting. It's now no longer that. In fact, we, saw, we see for the first time that it's tied to income inequality. And the big gap in trust for institutions is for government. If there's high inequality, there's low trust in government. And that's because government is seen as just being unable or unwilling to fix it. And so why are people concerned about job loss? They're concerned because they go into their CVS store and they see a place with no clerks. Um, and they're foreshadowing um, a change in the retail environment and also in financial services where jobs are definitely going to be replaced by machines. Mm -hmm. And so are we going to retrain? This is the existential question of the next decade for business. Retraining is a necessity if 40% of the jobs, according to McKinsey, are going to be shifted one way or another because of the fourth industrial revolution. We have a responsibility, both moral and practical, to retrain people. This is your 20th year doing this, right? Kind of went by like a blink. You were 20 years ago, and I'm sure you've seen lots of trends during that time. What are some of the big takeaways for you? So the most important trends are dispersion of authority, that uh, you move from a top-down model of government officials and CEOs towards a more um, dispersed, you know, individuals, peers. Uh, then we also saw a real rise of business, decline of government since the last decade mm -hmm. um, because of the impasse in Washington, impasse in Brussels over Greek debt, et cetera. Um, and lastly, we saw the battle for truth, which has a lot to do with your business. Um, 75% of people actually feel that they don't get quality information anymore. They're worried about fake news, mm. and they feel as if the media has become politicized um, and that opinion and fact are, are too combined. And so the media becomes an essential partner in the future 10 years uh, if we're going to have quality decisions. You think there's reason to be optimistic about the next 20 years of, of this barometer, this trust barometer of yours? I do. I, I feel that, that business is the catalyst for change. Um, it can't do it by, by, on its own, but business definitely has the bit between its teeth and is dragging the sled and recognizing that uh, in the future, um, prosperity is only going to work um, if it works for all and uh, that there is going to have to be operational change, not cosmetic change. And an overwhelming number of people looking to the CEO to make that charge. Richard Edelman, thanks so much for these insights. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm here with SAP's co-CEO, Christian Klein. Christian, good to see you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so this is your first uh, time at the World Economic Forum as co-CEO SAP. How do you imagine your role will change at an event like this? I mean, I'm really looking forward to great conversations, not only business conversations, also about, you know, bigger society issues we are facing these days to talk about climate change. I guess this will be also at the top of the agenda. Do you also close deals uh, at a meeting like this? How important is that? 
Now, we are, of course, talking to our customers. We want to, of course, understand how SAP can be an even better partner in their digital transformation. But here, it's not so much about closing deals. It's really about, you know, having some talks about the future strategy and how can we support our customers best in the digital economy. One of the biggest themes at, the, at this year's World Economic Forum is the fourth industrial revolution. How will SAP play in that? I mean, on two sides. I mean, when our customers look at us, you know, we are their major partner in their digital transformation when it comes about launching new business model in the digital age. How can we automate certain transactional processes? How can we design more intelligent processes in the supply chain, in finance, in HR? But again here, there are also biggest topics we have to talk about. What about our employees? Their job profiles will change. So we also have to have a responsibility about how to retrain the people and giving them you know, skills, what they need to succeed in the digital age. How big is the skills gap? The skills gap is actually quite huge. I mean, in some parts of the businesses, take for example retail, a truck store in the future, you, will, you won't see any salespeople in there anymore. Or take for example financial services. This will be completely go online and therefore we have to make sure that we train our people wide. It's all about continuous learning. Do big tech companies need to work closer together? I think a lot of us really focus on every, all the battles a lot of companies are having. But to get anything really transformational done, don't you have to work closer together? Absolutely. I also see that, especially you know, when it comes to vocational training at the universities, even at schools, I think there the economy together with you know, the politicians really have to make sure that we train the people early enough mm -hmm. to really equip them you know, with connected thinking, with new skills, what they need in the digital age. Mm -hmm. When you look, for example, in Germany, there is a high need for IT specialists, mm -hmm. and we have really a lack of talents. We have to change, and this is a common exercise between the economy and the politics. Uh, so we mentioned that you are the recently uh, appointed co-CEO of SAP, but you've been there for, for quite some time. You've seen some of the biggest acquisitions of the company. Last one, Qualtronics, uh, mm -hmm. deal closed in 2018. Will you be as aggressive uh, with acquisitions? The company has made five since 2018, 70 acquisitions since 1991. Uh, for, for the next chapter of SAP, Jennifer and I really you know, want to put customer success at the top of the agenda driving organic innovation together with our customers. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we really have to make sure now that in the next de decade, we really integrate our acquisitions, acquisitions well, that we gain the synergies on the top and the bottom line. So it's all about customer success and organic innovation. Are you through your restructuring? Yeah, we are now done. We, we did our last restructuring round last year. We set the company now up for success. And now, of course, we have to you know, drive an ongoing transformation, but there's no further restructuring plan. And lastly, uh, your predecessor put out some pretty big goals by 2023. Triple cloud subscribers, 35 billion in revenue, and some pretty aggressive profit targets. Is that still achievable? That's still achievable, and we are working also now on making you know, the right decision to you know, make our portfolio grow even more in the future, double down on cloud growth mm -hmm. while we are continuing to transform SAP to also drive productivity inside the company. And yes, we of course will stick to our 2023 targets. Uh, Christian Klein, SAP co-CEO, thank you for joining our Finance. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. I'm here with Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow. Secretary Chow, so nice to see you. Nice to see you. So um, you just issued a report yeah. on autonomous vehicles, some guidelines. Can you talk to us about what that entails? You know, autonomous vehicles are changing so rapidly. The technology is changing every year, if not faster. So we want to make sure that the federal government, which is going to be a major uh, regulator of this new technology, would at least have some harmonized guidelines 
as to how to approach this new technology. So there are like 38 different federal agencies throughout the government, and they had their own way, their own language on how to talk about all of this. So in conjunction with the White House, I announced um, a report that we did at CES, and um, it basically puts forward certain principles, and very top line, they are, we want to talk about safety and security. We want to ensure that innovation is not hampered, and also that whatever guidelines and policies come from the federal government, that they are consistent, so that there's consistent policy emanating from all these different um, you know, government entities. And I think that's really important because the government's role is to create the environment through which innovation can flourish. And that's what this AV 4.0, um, maintaining America's leadership in autonomous vehicles is all about. Really starting to see this coming on yeah. stream. And a similar technology or a similar uh, issue for you in terms of transportation that's also coming this year, perhaps, is commercial space travel. Very exciting. And you've got Virgin Galactic, yeah. SpaceX, Blue Origin, all ready to go. Are they working with you and your um, offices to make that happen? Of course, because uh, you know they have to get licenses to be able to launch their rockets. And six years ago, America was not uh, very much in the lead at all. But because of the advent of American technology and innovation and the invention of the reusable uh, rocket, America has now zoomed to number one. So we're very, very, I mean, we should all take great pride in that. And the number of launches are increasing every year. So we've had about 32, 34 this year. And next year, there's going to be about 44, 45. And as, they, as these uh, commercial space vehicles go into space and they become more frequent, uh, we at the FAA, at the U.S. Department of Transportation, have to think about how do we integrate and facilitate these launches. So one example, it, it, it's still that if, we, if a, a launch goes up, a certain perimeter of airspace has to be emptied. So this is very disruptive. And if indeed there's going to be more frequent launches, what does that mean for operation of the national airspace? So that's a big question. And second, uh, second of all, we're also um, licensing um, space ports. So there are over a dozen space ports now throughout the country, and more, and more states are interested. And then thirdly, uh, the FAA is actually in the business, uh, in, the, uh, in the responsibility is a better word, of um, licensing these launches. And as they, again, become more uh, frequent, uh, now, how can we facilitate uh, these launches, not make the government such a barrier, but still protect you know, safety and security of these launches? So these are pretty, some pretty weighty questions, but I think they speak to the uh, tremendous potential of transportation technology and the benefits that they can bring to our world, to our society, and of course, uh, to our country as well. You think we'll see one this year, some commercial space flight? Oh, definitely. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll probably have about 40 to 45. Mm, right. Oh, I mean uh, with, with humans on board. I think that's a little bit too yeah. early yeah. because uh, that's, you're kind of asking, but I'm, I'm going to give you a serious answer. Yeah. Anything that involves a human being exponentially complicates the licensing and the permitting process, and rightly so.
You know, it's a human life. Right. And so we have a heightened responsibility to ensure safety. So our mantra at the Department of Transportation on all of these emerging new transportation technologies can be very simply summarized in one sentence. And that is, we are preparing, the U.S. Department of Transportation is preparing for the transportation system of the future by engaging with emerging new technologies to address legitimate public concerns about safety, security, and privacy without hampering innovation. You know, that brings us to drones, naturally, yes. because that sentence definitely speaks to drones Absolutely. and what people think about it. And it's another business that's exploding and a lot of work for you guys to do to make sure it's safe, but also to allow that innovation. Where do we stand with drones, Secretary Chow? Well, I just came out of a panel at the World Economic Forum about um, you know how do we handle drones. There are now 1.5 million drones in our country. We have over 150,000 professional drone operators. I was the Secretary of Labor. When I was in sec uh, at Labor, when I was the Secretary yeah. of Labor, yeah. um, this job category did not even exist. So now drones are getting bigger, heavier, they have more capacity to carry either freight or potentially human beings. So we're talking about air taxis and you know we're talking about uh, all sorts of humans in flight in drones. So our responsibility at the US Department of Transportation is to ensure that the FAA, the agency that's in charge of the drones, uh, again, are viewing safety as a number one priority we're ensuring security of these drones because obviously they need to be safe from a security point, cybersecurity point of view. Thirdly, um, they need to be, they need to respect privacy. We get a lot of complaints about people who don't want to see drones outside their win second floor window, let's say, or third floor window. And then lastly, as drones proliferate, the issue of noise enters into it as well. So. The FAA has a responsibility to address noise issues with drones. And how do we license drones? Do we treat them like airplanes? And how do we track them? So for example, we heard recently that there were these coveys of drones flying at night. Right, over in the Midwest? The, in Nebraska, Nebraska right. in Colorado. We don't, know who they, we don't know who they belong to. We don't know who's operating them. To this day, we do not. Really? And Are so, you investigating still? Uh, the, law the local law enforcement yeah. initiates the action. Mm -hmm. We're very lucky nothing happened, so the local law enforcement have, step have um, stepped down. Right. So we're, no, we're, no, we're not actively uh, investigating that uh, because the local law enforcement stood down. Right. But this talks to a very pertinent notice of proposed rulemaking, which we just announced. And we're sending it out for public comment, and it, uh, the public comment will end on March 2nd, so please comment, I urge people to do so. But this new notice of proposed rulemaking would require remote identification of drones. So any drone that is over 0.55 of a pound, half a pound, and that is registered with the FAA needs to be able to have remote identification capacity. And again, there could not have been a more timely, 
uh, example as to why we are thinking about this than the covey of, again, drones over the skies of Nebraska and Colorado. And law enforcement in particular. Law enforcement and the military are very concerned about remote identification of uh, drones. Yeah, a lot for you to work on there. Um, and finally, Secretary Chow, we're here in Davos at the World Economic Forum, as you said. Um, what do you feel like you got out of it and what did you try to impart to the people here? Well, number one, I'm always a person who loves to learn. And if you're that kind of a person, you would learn so much uh, by being at the World Economic Forum because uh, there is such a diversity of experts in practically every subject area that you would want to know. From my point of view, I've just outlined some issues that we are facing with new emerging technologies in the transportation sector. So we want to share our thinking as to what the proper role of government is and what we are thinking in terms of regulating some of those new technologies. And we look for feedback. This feedback will also occur in a more formalized environment, but we're always looking to make sure that the government is doing the right thing. And our posture at this point is, number one, we're tech neutral. We are not into industrial policy in this country. We're not into command and control, and we're not top down. We want the consumer the, you know, the consumer to decide how best they want to use these new technologies. So last point, I've talked to a lot of um, innovators on uh, self-driving cars, for example, autonomous vehicles. And I say to them that they need, I challenge Silicon Valley, I challenge the auto manufacturers, I challenge them to share their enthusiasm, their confidence, and their excitement about this new technology. Because it does have certain benefits. It liberates people with disabilities who can now regain their mobility. It helps to restore freedom to people, to the elderly, so that they can be independent. And 94% of accidents occur because of human error. So we need to get that percentage down and perhaps the new technologies, autonomous vehicles, can bring safer um, you know, driving and mobility as well. But 71% of Americans are very reluctant to get into a self-driving car. And so I challenge Silicon Valley and also the auto manufacturers, and I say, share your confidence because consumer acceptance will be the constraints to your growth. All right, very interesting. Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.